You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 32, 1992's Nemesis and the films of Albert Pune, featuring Swords, Sorcerers, Radioactive Dreams, Vicious Lips, Down Twisted Deals, Aliens from L.A., Cyborgs, Kickboxers, Blood Matches, Doll Men, Arcades, and... Captain America, Martin, yes, you'd fuck a dead dog from hell before you'd fuck an alien from Alpha Centauri. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me, as always, is Martin Carlson. Martin, God damn it! I don't even know what we did to ourselves this season, because between this and the new French Extremity episode, uh, we took a pounding a bit. I thought that the French, the new French Extremity was going to be the nadir. Um, this was the hardest group of films to watch. Uh, the French films were existentially terrifying, but the majority of them are good films. Yeah, they were just miserable. They yeah, made you the subject, hate life. Yeah. They were hard to sit through because of how like violent and yeah, misanthropic, politically motivated, and like they had a very cynical worldview it, it, overall. This was just qualitatively tough. Yeah, there's something you said to me over text. You're like, I think my idea of Albert Pune is more interesting than the films themselves. And or like, you have this idea of, of what they're like. And a couple of these, they range from competent at best to really, really terrible films. I mean, objectively, borderline unwatchable. I mean, really like, I mean, we'll get to deceit, but deceit is up there with one of the worst things I've seen in like decades. It, I was watching it. It's an hour and 32 minutes long. It feels 19 hours long. It feels like you're in a play and your mom took you and you're like in seventh grade. You're like, I don't want to be here and it won't end. You're like, isn't this act three now? Are we almost done? Brutal. Yeah. Watching these movies, I had the revelation that one of the things that people love about Albert Pune is that he is a DIY maverick. 
Like he always is working, especially during his kind of like peak years. He was churning out two, three, four movies a year, sometimes making one movie with the leftovers from the movie that he was currently making before it. Um, and in my mind is a born smuggler. A lot of the times he was just taking money from producers promising a certain type of movie being be it like an action movie a sci-fi thing a cyberpunk thriller a love story and he was just like okay but i'm just gonna do my own thing inside of it he was always bringing like an idea or a germ of like something he wanted to experiment with and then that would uh, have all of the genre kind of constructs would be built around that idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it has a really like adolescent energy to a lot of these. It feels like if I had been 13, like what is cool? Um, I think about like just the design of, of Nemesis and you have these like big black sunglasses and shotguns and trench coats. Everything looks like super fucking cheap. Um, but that that's where the charm is, I think, in these movies. It reminded me a lot of what the second movie we actually did on this podcast overall, which was Six String Samurai. Absolutely. How, to your point, it has that lizard brain mentality of construction that's based on the whole idea of like, wouldn't it be cool if? Yes. Wouldn't it be cool if Jean-Claude Van Damme was like a lone gunslinger who fought a bunch of like half human, half cybernetic organisms? Wouldn't it be cool if Tim Thomerson played a 13-inch man who track down a severed head that flies on a hoverboard through like portals of time and into another dimension. Wouldn't it be cool if Kathy Ireland was a adolescent, like teenage or even preteen girl trapped inside a supermodel's body who happens to stumble upon this gateway to the center of the earth and the mythical uh, city of Atlantis. Wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if like that is the guiding mantra of Albert Pune every time he's entering one of these projects. And honestly, like there's nothing wrong with that. That's pretty fucking cool. The thing is there's a difference between admiring somebody's moxie and idiosyncrasy And that idiosyncrasy actually equating to a good viewing experience or something entertaining. That's where the schism was in my head to where I was like, I'm watching this. And again, like you said, I like the idea of Albert Pune. I like this guy who basically is making these movies trashy and hated as they were in their day. And like, this is a guy who was called like the modern Ed Wood during the eighties and nineties when he was really churning out a lot of that DTV stuff and the stuff for like Charles band and everything. But it's like, there's a difference between actually liking his movies and liking the dude behind the movies. Yeah. And it's what I wrote down watching these films was high concept, low budget Um, because a lot of these films, like the setup, and I think with a, with a different cast and with a different director could have been eighties classics. I mean, I think specifically, I think the best made film of this group, um, I watched about eight for this and you watched considerably more. Um, I reached my limit, uh, 16, you watched 16, you doubled my number and, um, I'm happy for you, but I'm, I'm not happy for you. Yeah. I, um, but I think the the best quality film of the group 
um, is dangerously close. Um, that would be up there for me, too. That feels like, if I didn't know he directed it and kind of walked in and watched this on Showtime at like 3 p.m., it's a competently made teen thriller, takes place in a high school. The idea is great um, of this these like, basically almost like neo-Nazi, but these like um, super over-the-top cool kids who decide they're going to protect protect the school from drug addicts and riffraff. And it's a magnet school, so you know it's bringing in kids from the inner city and kids with from lower income homes, and they just don't want them there. And it's almost like the teen iteration of the history of the KKK to where it's about how they create their own policing group that gets wildly out of control and starts basically othering people and being like, well, if you don't fit this certain profile, then we're going to harass and even kill you in certain cases. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting like what it's talking about. And it's also just like a well-made movie. If this had like Michael J. Fox or like Eric Stoltz or someone like that in a lead role, again, had a bigger budget and had a different director. Like the idea is there. I think, you know, he has big ideas. Um, like nemesis is a, a big idea movie, um, that he somehow sometimes is really good at hiding his lack of budget. I think that, Using a wide-angle lens, um, shooting in—he's um, a, he's a location master. That's one of his like highlights, especially is like finding these old, broken-down factories, industrial spaces for Nemesis and for Cyborg in Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. It adds a lot of production value. This kind of like post-apocalyptic style. He loves his sepia tones. Um, he loves his Steadicam and his handheld. It. A lot of primary and neon colors. Yes. Um, so he has a style, and and some of the shots, like, you, like Adrenaline's an, an example of a film. I mean, chopped to hell by by the Weinstein's and another uh, down from a hundred and ten minutes to like seventy six or something. Yeah, and he, um, but the the pacing. I mean, even knowing that it was it was hacked to pieces by Harvey. Um, Similarly, what happened with like Mimic, you know, for for Del Toro, the film itself is still pretty incompetent. But like you freeze frame any shot of that and it looks like a million bucks. I mean, it. Oh, sure. He he knows how to like find these shots that look like something out of like a Cameron movie or like a a higher budget, like sci fi kind of epic. But then it starts to go into motion and the cracks begin to show very quickly. Well, it helps when. Kurosawa and his cinematographer Takao Sato, I believe is how you say his name. They were like some of Pune's earliest mentors. And then uh, because Pune went to Japan to work for uh, Toshiro Mifune, like he was the first person to really champion uh, Albert's movies because he saw some of his short films and was like, Hey kid, you, you kind of have something. Why don't you come work for me? And they were actually supposed to work on a Kurosawa movie together during the mid seventies. I can't remember the title of which one, but Mifune actually ended up dropping out and working on a bunch of his TV shows in, in Japan. And that's how, uh, Pune got his start. He basically became like Toshiro Mifune's like personal assistant and just hanging around all these Japanese sets and stuff and like getting a hands-on kind of crash course for the business itself and how you actually make movies. And then Sato was the one who took him under his wing and showed him composition and how to, uh, you know, block, edit, 
things like that. And like, again, the technical side of making movies and then like a lot of our favorite directors, like Tony Scott, Michael Bay, a lot of these action greats, Pune started working in like commercials and stuff. And like, that's how he knew how to, or really honed his skills on, on making things fast and cheap. And with limited resources, he would call stuff together and just really, he, he was a product man, let's say to where like he was given an assignment. And even if he tried to do his own thing inside of it, he still knew he had to deliver what the producers wanted in one form or another. Now, that being said, Pune himself claims that the majority of his filmography was taken away from him at one point or another. He's almost like Peck and Paw in that weird way. <laughs> Is that like he just, you know, like something like Radioactive Dreams was finished by like a, a Bond company stooge. Weinstein, as you mentioned, uh, took Adrenaline Fear the Rush away from him. I know Charles Band was very meddlesome, like in this one lengthy interview that I found with Pune from about 2017, they asked him like, how did you like working for Charles band? And his like blunt answer was, well, I didn't really. And it was like, because Charlie didn't seem to really like the movies. He only liked the money that he made off of them. But again, even though these, these unfortunate circumstances occurred, you know, he still was, persevering he was like and i think that's where a lot of people latch on to his filmography is that he was a guy that no matter how many times he got kicked in the balls by these money men he still showed up to work the next day shrugged off the last movie and was like fuck it man i'm gonna make four more this year yeah i mean the the clearest example for me and i i went down this rabbit hole and i'd heard the stories but i wanted to know more was the history of cyborg you know and um very turns out it's completely true. So he was hired to do. Oh yeah, you can source all this. It shit. is awesome. So he's supposed to do Spider Man and Masters of the Universe too, and they were both going to shoot in Wilmington, North Carolina, for Canon Films. And he was supposed to do the Peter Parker parts of Spider Man first, and then Masters of the yes, Universe. Yes, this is fucking crazy, and it's really wild. I, so he was going to do, yeah, the beginning pre Spider Bite Peter Parker. Six weeks go over and shoot all of Masters of the Universe. Yeah, because whoever was playing Peter was supposed to get like super swole. For, they had like, a UCLA trainer who was going to fly in yeah. and bulk him up. Just bulk him up. That's all he was going to do for six weeks while well, they shot an entire fucking movie and then come back and be ready to shoot the end of Spider-Man. Now, um, you know, Canon, uh, known for not being always the best businessman, this was at the end of their tenure, um, lost the rights to Spider-Man, bungled that, and they also lost the rights to Masters of the Universe. Because they bounced the checks they bounced to the checks. Mattel and Marvel. They were already $2 million in the hole on pre-production on both. Well, it was one, you know, they built um, a lot of the New York set um, in Wilmington. And the end scene in Cyborg with the huge fight scene in the water where it's raining, that was the New York square they had built, I believe. Um, and... They said, okay, we're fucked. And Pune says, give me a weekend. And he goes and writes Cyborg in like two fucking days, which is to your point of a guy who hit a brick wall. Another filmmaker would have been like, oh, I can't think of an idea that quick. I'm fucked. We're fucked. I'm going to have to move on. I still get paid, right? Yeah. And he, you know, I think it's like Darren Aronofsky who drops off projects like left and right. You know, if it goes a little bit sour. He's gone. Pune's like, 
okay, well, I have an idea. And within like weeks, they were shooting. Like, it's fucking insane. And you, it, well, I'm a huge Master of the Universe, the movie fan, and also the toy line. I love watching Cyborg and seeing the costumes like uh, Ralph Muller, the, the big beefy dude. Mm-hmm. He's clear that his whole outfit's for Master of the Universe. Like, it's just, they didn't even change it that much. Um, but I, I think it's like, that adds a lot of charm too. And Cyborg is one of his more competent films too, I think. You know, it, it, helping to have a, a lead star like Van Damme kind of anchors it compared to like Olivier Gruner in Nemesis, who's just a, a, a charisma void. Talk about like one of the worst leading men in history of cinema. I mean, seriously. Yeah, they're clearly trying to recapture that magic yes. of Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, with Gruner, and it does not work. I think I was telling you about another movie that I watched that Gruner was in right around the same time period called Angel Town, yeah. which was all almost like lean on me to where like he's the the hardcore like teacher who comes in and really wants to mentor the youths in LA, but gets mixed up in like a gang war against like the Latinos and all the Crips and bloods and shit. And it's, it's a horrible movie. It's kind of fun to watch because it's so inept and weird, but like he's just this block of meat that walks into this like South LA high school. And is like, I want to tell the children about how the world works and how we will love each other. And you're like, dear Lord, like the narration and nemesis, the rest of nemesis fucking shreds. And then he has to narrate certain parts. And it's kind of like how you imagine the, the earliest cuts of blade runner were. But if you like suffered a head injury before you started watching it, there's, there's some writing in these films. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the worst parts is, is the screenwriting. And he writes most of his movies, usually under like pseudonyms like Kitty Chalmers, Hannah Blue. Is Rebecca also? The I one? believe that's him as well. Who? Rebecca Chambers. Chambers? Something like that. Who wrote Nemesis? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's also him. Okay, so you messaged me about Deceit. I made it five minutes into this movie. I turned it off, and you said, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going all the way. I said, fuck it. If Jacob can do it. I can do it. So I put it back on. Again, a 19-hour viewing experience, but you said the funniest thing. You're like, this is like a mammoth with a head injury. And it really is. The it's whole like, thing takes place in like a brick room and with a, a fan going overhead. Like it's almost like an abandoned warehouse. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's these two aliens who are on the run. And the whole idea of the title deceit is it's these people all lying to one another. But it's not that smart. I mean, it's the 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 lines just go in circles. It's like the, it's like the room kind of dialogue. It just goes in circles, and well, and you can see that he's trying to make a point yeah. in that movie about like predatory men and sexuality because the whole hook is like an alien sex fiend comes down to earth, possesses a man's body after he kills himself on the side of the road by drinking bleach, and like you, you even texted me back. You're like that death scene lasts for like three motherfucking minutes. <laughs> Like he drinks bleach and then we watch him just have a seizure and die. And then the alien comes out of nowhere and is like making this weird, like Kathy Ireland from alien and LA voice. Like, and it like dives into his body and then his hair grows longer. His hair grows longer. (laughs) And then he gets picked up by a bunch of rednecks. And then he ends up in this, uh, 
this warehouse with the super hot woman that's only in lingerie the whole time. And then they just become begin like screaming at each other. Like it's fucking black box theater. It's almost like the demon from Jason goes to hell was act like asked to do like a, a Sam Shepard play. You can't believe what you're watching, but it becomes about like all he wants to do is fuck her. She keeps re- rebuffing him. And then like another, like the alien that's basically hunting him enters in and then he wants to try and fuck her. And it really is like Pune in a weird way, like loves his female characters and is almost like, I don't want to go as far as to call him a feminist, but like he has feminist tendencies or he has feminist interests to where he looks at men as predatory figures. They're always to never be trusted. And like he loves his strong female characters to kind of ward them off throughout all of his projects here though. You're just like, what the fuck is going on? And you made this last for 90 minutes. However, deceit is another one of those movies that I love in concept because he basically made it for 22 grand over a weekend using the short ends that he had left over from cyborg and like two of the sets. And he just called because like Norbert Weiser or Weiser, I believe is mm-hmm. how you say his name. Who's been in a million of his productions. Who's like, actually not a terrible actor. No, he's pretty good. Like, he's I mean, solid. wasn't he in Schindler's list yeah. too for Spielberg? Mm-hmm. So it's like not a bad actor at all. And actually counts uh, pune as a good friend. Um, there's this book that I had and I was using as a guide uh, by this Canadian writer named Justin uh, Declo, who he wrote a book called Radioactive Dreams. And he actually breaks down all of Pune's films individually individually, and gives you capsule reviews and everything. But he's even really honest throughout the, the course of the revisiting his filmography of being like, why the fuck would anybody want to write a book about Albert Pune? That's literally what the intro of his book says because some of these movies are so bad and so hard to sit through and deceit is one of those ones. It's probably the prime example of like, this is so fucking cool in theory, but in execution, it's like nails on a chalkboard. It's shrill. That's a word we use a lot. Oh God. Like you said, it's like fever pitch screaming the entire time. And what you said earlier though, about like how he kind of, um, he smuggles in is this was released by 20th century Fox and no 20th century film corporation. That was actually the offshoot after golden and Globus oh, broke you're, up. Oh, you're right. I'm such an asshole. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the one that I believe that's the Menahem Golan, uh, formed company that after Canon went under or they, they split when they went broke to together and he kept trying to make movies because that's who, was going to release all the Marvel stuff too, even after, you know, Canon kind of folded and they put out a bunch of Pune's like early nineties output. And this movie is just like, dear Lord, man. Like, I, I don't know how anyone thought it was going to be any good, let's say, but they were all super committed and it's hard not to be inspired by that, at least on like a, an abstract level. Yeah. And thank you for, I, I, that makes a lot more sense with the not being Fox. I, I do not understand how that's possible, but 
when you look at the synopsis of this film, the official synopsis is like two aliens come to blow up the earth and decide to stick around and get laid. It sounds like a meatballs sex comedy. Like the, again, it's pitched and I was like, oh, it sounds like surf too. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's kind of schlocky, you know, all these two aliens and like, Oh, we're just horn balls, like a killer clown from our space kind of feel. And it ends up being this like dreary, just punching you in the face with horrible dialogue, no pacing, again, just over and over again, the same dialogue circles just going over and over again. This is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, seriously. A lot of them aren't great, but I also wondered while watching a lot of it too is if that was the natural byproduct of him or his career, I should say, being birthed almost exclusively by like hardcore exploitation style producers. Because even like Sword and the Sorcerer, his first film, which I quite like, uh, like we watched it together and we kind of talked through a lot of it. Yeah, I've seen it before. But then so. I, I had too, but I hadn't seen it like cleaned up. And that Shout Factory disc is like really amazing looking, you know, especially when you compare it to like watching it on VHS or that old Anchor Bay DVD yeah. or like let's say the illicit torrents I would have to try and like seek out if I wanted to watch it in the meantime before, cause there was a lot of, there was a huge gap between the anchor Bay release and this new scream factory or shout factory, uh, 4k. And so like, if you wanted to watch this movie, you had to like find a burn on YouTube or something. And like those copies looked like shit. This makes the movie look amazing. However, all of the seams are still intact and probably highlighted even more because of the 4K transfer. But Pune was basically only hired, like they had this idea for Sword and the Sorcerer to make this medieval, you know, sword and sandals epic. They shopped it around all of Hollywood, got rejected, rejected, rejected. And then John Borman comes along and makes Excalibur in 1981. And that opens the door to where this producer, Brandon Chase, I believe is his name. It's why he's the first one listed. We even kind oh, of it's weird. A Brandon Chase film. It. It's a Brandon Chase film, not an Albert Pune film. But he was the producer and he had only like helmed like three or four like soft core kind of like sexploitation style like pornos himself under like a pseudonym, I believe. But he signed Pune on, greenlit the production, and especially with like Conan the Barbarian yeah. coming out and everything. And really, when that craze started in the early 80s, crawl shit like that. But like they wanted to compete with that, but they made, I believe it's like a $4 million movie. So still very low budgeted. And when you watch the film, it's one of the first examples of Pune taking very little resources and just making like this maximalist epic out of them where like it literally has a sword with three blades that shoots them like it's a fucking rocket launcher. It's so awesome. It's bananas because I remember I think I saw when I was really young. Me and I remember too. it just being the movie where the guy can shoot blades off his sword. And even even as a kid, I'm like. But wait, does he have to like go pick them up and like reload it, or does is he go there buy a magnet? Yeah, involved? does he like buy more blades? You know, <laughs> does he buy? Is this like Zelda where he has to go to like a little cave and like reload his blades? Yeah, but it was funny because I I thought about um, how Pune also like loves weapons um, and like sci-fi weapons. Like one of my favorite 
um, of these films also is Dollman. And Dollman has um, it's so cool because when he's full size, he's on he's on his uh, Arturos, um, his alien planet. He's you know of course on there he's he's regular size and he has this gun that he shoots these like gangsters and they explode like they just guts and they go everywhere and they it's, blow the fuck they up. blow up and there's just blood and like and pink mist and it's just really wonderful and then but what's cool was that explains why when he comes to Earth where he's super miniature that gun is still powerful enough to kill full size human beings but it was awesome too is he has this like magnet in his hand. And he and so when someone takes his gun away, he can just be like, and it comes. It's so comic booky. Again, Dollman, I could see like have been made in like 1986 with a, maybe not like Schwarzenegger, but like an action star. You know, like that kind of idea. That's that's banned as well too. I mean, Empire and Full Moon. Instead, we we get Trancers star and former comedian Tim Tomerson. God in full Jack death mode. Like he's so good in that movie. He's also really good nemesis too, as the, the, he's almost like the, the M Emmett Walsh stand in only he's more hardcore from blade runner to where, cause he's the captain who recruits him back and in, then turns into and the, and then turns him. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, but Tomerson in these movies, like he found his niche, like working for band really. And like just getting to be an action hero, it's such an odd. You could do an entire podcast episode on like his output as like this almost like B or C grade shelf stuffer legend to where like he appeared in shit like Trancers and like that movie rules, man. And I it's love because Trancers. of him pretty much. And that Doll Man is the same way to where like if anybody else. Then, then Tomerson was that lead role. Movie wouldn't work at all. Well, yeah, he he so knows the movie he's in. It's so like tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know, all his stuff is like, like what's going on? It's like urban fucking renewal. I mean, he knows these are one liners. Um, he he leans into like the fact that he's giving the main woman fuck eyes the whole time, and at the end, the last line is like, "Who says size doesn't matter." And it's just like goes to credits. It's well, like even that opening, um, oh my god, hostage situation where it's a bunch of fat women in a laundry room being held at gunpoint, and like he does the whole like hero enter enters the scene, but he's carrying a sack of laundry the entire time, and they're like, "What are you gonna do? What do you think?" And he goes, "I'm thinking cold for whites and warm for colors, or whatever the fuck he says." And you're like, "What?" And then he goes down and literally starts doing his laundry during this like hostage situation. But it's such an odd visual gag because it's not just these fat women. Then all of a sudden there's these like these little plump, like Willy Wonka <laughs> fat kids are there. And too. he's really mean to him. And he's like mean to him. It's like you can tell like Charles Band has a thing about little people Little dolls. We were talking, we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah, like demonic toys. He puppet even made master. Puppet master. He even made you know dolls with Stuart Gordon, like that weird little like the murder dolls that they made that. I believe they made that movie in Italy. Yeah, but like doll man versus demonic toys. Doll man versus demonic toys. There's just a lot of little things, you know, like Ginger Dead Man. Yeah, Ginger Dead Man. Another evil bong. Yep. I don't know if that counts as little people, but yeah. like. Where we're going with this <laughs> is that we know 
that at some point an action figure has been shoved inside Charles Band's ass. Oh, he's yeah. Um, well, there's something I wanted to bring up too with with Dollman is Charles they, Band's ass. Besides his ass, um, <laughs> is his name is Brick Bardo. Yeah, and this name comes up in pretty much every single Pune film, and it's either the lead character. Or it's a side character. Their doll man, I believe, is the fourth by that point because the one villain from Cyborg is Brick Bardo. Yep. Um, the villain in Deceit or the the intergalactic FBI agent. Yep. Is uh, and then Brick Bardo is doll man. We're missing one. Oh, also Blood Match. Brick Bardo. That's the lead comes character. Up as the lead character. There's a few more. Yeah, we're missing an early one, too. But apparently that was just a name that he loved because it reminded him of Tab Hunter Uh-oh. or Rock Hudson, is that it was his version of that like 50s marquee idol that he just wanted to keep putting in his movies where he was like, Brick Bardo, it's just a fucking great name. It's, it seems like you know, Radioactive Dreams is almost autobiographical, the film, because it's about this these you know, um, two guys who were raised from or basically grew up alone as children in a bomb shelter, um, being weaned on, uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And so their names are, um, Philip and Marlo, their first names. And it's, uh, John Stockwell, God fucking bless him. Um, and our boy, Michael Dudikoff, in one of his strangest roles. I mean, his absolute strangest. Yeah. There's, there's none that are weirder than this because outside of this movie, I only know Dudikoff as like the stoic, stoic, same as obviously like, like Olivier Gruner is like, he's almost just like a, a sentient bag of meat the entire time that just shows up in these action films, like stuff like river of death, American Ninja, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But here he's like, Doing like also weird, shrill. Yeah, it's super <laughs> weird. He's doing a voice the whole time. They dance like just he's doing a, a Cagney thing. Yeah. I think he's trying to do a Cagney, but like a higher pitched one. Um, but it's you know it feels autobiographical again for for Pune of the you know being weaned on a certain type of cinema, being obsessed with that kind of old time movie star, old time um, detective fiction, and then what do you do with it? You go out in the world and. Obviously, we've talked about we know where his inspirations come from and how he was weaned on working with certain people in Japan. One well, also, but what does he have raised, to show for it? Back to your bomb shelter point, he was raised as a kid on Honolulu, like by his dad, and like he remembers like the things that really transported him away from that isolated island. I mean, we're talking about Hawaii, like it's some horrible place to grow up. Yeah. But like he, you know, that's all he knew. Like to him, it was like the Island and nothing else. Yeah. But then they would go see, he specifically in this one interview, I read sites, the Toho theater that oh cool looked like a big temple, almost like a fake, almost kind of like the, the Sid Grauman, like downtown in LA. Mm-hmm. And he would go see movies with his dad. And he was like, I loved like James Bond movies and Bye Bye Birdie and all these like huge cinematic things, almost kind of the same way that John Woo talked about growing up and watching movies in Hong Kong and the slums and stuff in that they just took him to another place. And he just knew like, even as a teenager, he talks about like working at a gas station in Hawaii and he would literally sketch 
like in his notebook, like what movie sets would look like and everything. And like, that's just what he wanted to do. He was like a born filmmaker. Yeah. It's um again, that's that, that's charming. You know, it's, right. it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a person though, who's phoning it in. Like we, I think it's the opposite, right? It's, it's a guy who we're saying is making a lot out of nothing. You know, like he's he's taking very few um, uh, kind of uh, a, a little bit of money and uh, turning it into a movie that looks bigger than it should. You reach and exceed your grasp. You should always be going for more than you can actually get than you can hit. And there's right? that real grandiose version of like, or what else is heaven for? You know, and like to me, that is Albert Pune to a certain degree of like just this guy, even in his worst movies, was like. Well, it should look like this, and it should be about this, even if he couldn't achieve that. Like, Sword and the Sorcerer, he gets pretty close. I mean, because that movie has, like, goopy monsters played by Richard Mull. Yep. Um, Richard Lynch's ugly, nightmare, LSD-burned face. Those amazing kind of gauzy, conquest, Fulci-esque style, like, hazy tableaus. They're all shot in California, but like you would think that you're in like Ireland or England or something as crucifixions. It just it's multiple naked, naked, beautiful women. And like, again, to bring it back to the teenage boy thing is that it's just that lizard brain. Like what would be awesome in like a, a, a fantastical novel if you just bought it at the grocery store? Like what would you want to find in those pages, you know? Yeah, and and again, sometimes he really delivers. I mean, I think Nemesis from front to back is a solid DTV movie. Um, oh, it's awesome! I it think looks amazing. It looks great. I mean, now there's like you know better copies out there. So even watching, I think I watched it on Tubi, and it was an HD newer HD transfer. It's really gorgeous. Um, I think it, they're the same ones that are on those MVD yes. marquee collection discs that came out because they put out the first one on a, as a standalone disc and then two, three and four were on like a collected disc because he did through four. Yes. And then he, that's where it stopped. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean like we talked about this with, um, when we were talking about uh, the Boyka series, you know, of making films and like knowing what you can do with the resources that you have. Um, this is a little bit different. I think, I think he's reaching for more, um, but I think Nemesis like doesn't go too big. This one, I think knows what its budget is. It feels, you know, it, it knows like where to kind of keep the, the scope. You I know, think within. Nemesis is the one why it's his best movie is is because it's the one where it all sinks together. Yeah. To where it's like his there's an element of almost like fan fiction or doodling to all of his films. And it, in that one, it's almost like, OK, well, what if I made Blade Runner? <laughs> but I also had Terminator stuff. And like there's some William Gibson, like cyberpunk elements. Super, super neuromancer. But also yeah. it turns out to be like sort of a Western, like it's kind of like what he wanted to do originally with, with cyborg, which was to be like, to me, when I watch that movie, I see almost like a lone wolf and cub type film. He wanted it to be almost like a, a Sergio Leone, like futuristic Western. And like nemesis has a, 
I think achieves that a little better, especially after the the long like shootout intro, which is fucking awesome. Oh, it's he's great. like running across the roof and Super like, shooting that. Yeah, he's shooting that like spaz shotgun like almost like it's a machine gun and then like he you know he gets injured he gets his leg blown off and he goes and rehabilitates with his dog and like he's basically staying on like a Sergio Leone style like ranch when he's recruited back into the fold and I just kept thinking like Pune is one of those guys that like it's almost like if I fail the first time I'm gonna try it at least one more time because like radioactive dreams Taken away from him is, to your point, like a coming of age movie about these two guys who emerge from this bunker and go on this like kind of episodic adventure to uh, seek out their fathers. One of which is played by George Kennedy. Seeing George Kennedy with uh, a grenade launcher and like gritting his teeth. That's heaven. Like yeah. I was smiling. I was like, I never thought I needed to see George Kennedy shooting a grenade launcher, but God, it was awesome. Well, Radioactive Dreams is one of those movies that like proved how powerful his vision actually was. Yes. Because if that movie was taken away from him, like it still feels one hundred percent like an Albert Pune film. Like right down to like because they go on these episodic adventures, they meet like. Uh, again, it's it's a mashup of all these different elements that you could tell were just in his brain and in his like little doodles as a kid working at that gas station. It's like they, he meets like road warrior punks and then they get to a place called Edge City and then there's a giant fucking monster rat in, in the, That's awesome. uh, the sewers. Then there's a machine gun battle with these, these dudes who are in like cyborg suits. And then the movie stops dead in its tracks for Sue sad in the next to, to sing guilty pleasures in the middle of it, which quick story. The first time I saw radioactive dreams was at X fest. I believe the first or second one on on 35 millimeter, none of us had any idea what it was and it just started playing. All we got was the, I'll never forget this. It was like the second or third film of of the day in this marathon and the Dino De Laurentiis, the DEG group, like logo comes up and I'm sitting next to Phil Nobile and I just hear him go, oh boy, here we go. Like that. And it's like, and then Radioactive Dreams came on and that movie blew people like a packed house away, especially when they get to Edge City. He does that huge crane shot up that captures the whole city. And then all of a sudden, Sue Sad just comes into the frame and starts screeching the song. You heard the whole, like a collective gasp of like, what the fuck am I watching now? But that became a running motif throughout his films too, because in Crazy Six, there's a lounge singer who's actually one of the characters in the movie. And this one, like she just kind of shows up and is becomes like the Greek chorus, like for that one brief moment. But in Crazy Six, he uses her song. She's like a, a lounge like techno singer in like this Eastern block like shithole club to where like, but her songs like narrate the entire movie. And again, you can see these germs of these ideas peppered throughout his entire filmography where he's like, okay, well I tried this here. Like maybe this will work here. And like with radioactive dreams, it's all kind of there. And then with radioactive dreams, he also meets his biggest like musical collaborators because members of Sue Sad and the next, uh, 
particularly Tony Ripperetti, I believe his name is, would score like 20 of his films. So like, obviously he was a fun guy to work for because these people all stuck around and just kept churning out movies regardless of how good or bad they turned out. The interesting thing, I mean, out of all these films, Radioactive Dreams probably is the most interesting to me because it feels of a type with uh, a couple of other 80s films, Streets of Fire um, and Repo Man. Um, One, he cites Streets of Fire. He watched it at a private screening on the Universal lot when he was working on, I can't remember what movie he was talking about, but he says like he carried that movie with him for like the rest of his career. Like he thought it was like one of the greatest things he'd ever seen. Well, it makes a lot of sense because that bleeds into radioactive dreams. It definitely bleeds into vicious lips. Well, and he makes you the know. unofficial sequel in the, in the late two thousands uh, road to hell. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which was his, uh, streets of fire. Well, it's, it's interesting because that means that he's, I don't put him far off the mark of not in terms of quality, but of ideas from Alex Cox and Walter Hill. Sure. Walter, they both create, well, Walter Hill creates comic book worlds. He always has. It's it's not a lot of his best stuff is not the real world. I mean, Streets of Fire is like this alternate timeline. It's it feels like, um, well, it, another place, another time. Yeah, and the Warriors is that comic book kind of like this is this comic book version of nineteen seventy nine New York. But with Alex Cox, the the randomness of a film like Repo Man or. I think of like Highway Patrolman is not far off from an Albert Pune film. It's better, sure, but it has that kind of vibe, the randomness. Well, again, um, that DIY punk spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I prefer Alex Cox significantly as a filmmaker, um, but I, I like Alex Cox. It's really funny that when we first started this podcast, you go, I don't want to be another podcast that sits around talking about Repo Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was, true. Uh, there, it was like our first week, and I was like, "Here I am." We're finally talking about it, but like, it definitely is interesting that he's he's kind of in similar um, spheres of influence as some other like really interesting filmmakers from that time. Sure. And then again, he would just kind of keep redoing himself because Alien from L.A. is sort of the same movie as Radioactive Dreams because it's about a girl who Kathy Ireland who like. They try to make it's very much inspired by like Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. because it's it even begins with once upon a time there was a girl and it's like it tries to sell you on like Kathy Ireland like nobody likes her and she's a big nerd because she wears glasses I guess but she still looks like like that's all that our pune does he's like here's some glasses now you're a fucking dork and it's like okay but she still looks like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, so <laughs> I think she'll be fine. Um, but she like has a whole thing where she's like, I wish somebody would like me, and I just I need to find adventure outside of my world because she works as like a roller skating like car hop at this like 50s-style diner. And then it becomes almost like an Indiana Jones movie, where she leaves her bomb shelter because her father is in Africa and is a, yeah, exactly, is an archaeologist who finds a doorway to the center of the world in the mythical uh, city of Atlantis. And she, you know, goes after him thinking that she he died because she gets a letter. It's that very, like, 20s and 30s style, like, serial setup. Cool. And then she goes on an adventure and falls down this portal and goes to the center of the world. But, like, it's just 
radioactive dreams again where there's like a crazy city and punks who live underground and Tom Matthews shows up and becomes like her love interest whose only name is Charming and then she's like seeking out her dad and stuff but it's all the same themes as radioactive dreams but it's him doing it again and to in my mind maybe doing it slightly better I know a lot of people talk about Alien from LA as one of those like ultimate like so bad it's good type experiences I actually find the movie very charming because it's gorgeous to look at has an amazing soundtrack a lot of his early stuff like this and down twisted is another one and uh, dangerously close Fucking depeche mode yeah have all of this amazing like new wave like bangers Hell that yeah. are front to back makeup even sue sad in the next like that guilty pleasure song is amazing and she does a bunch of music for uh, vicious lips too i like all the music in that movie yeah. I, I really don't like that movie yeah, but vicious I lips lo- sucks it's but the really music bad rules. But the whole point is, like, a lot of people count Alien from L.A. as, like, one of these things that's, like, uh, it, it, it's riff tracks and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. like, I watch it. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing here. Like, this works for me because it's just this incredibly sweet journey about this girl who learns to find herself and find love outside of the world that she already knows, this insular, like, kind of bubble in the end, she still looks like Kathy Ireland. Like, the big reveal of this movie, It's this is the most laughable thing to me, is, again, it starts with her sitting on a beach, and she's basically broken up by this, like, hunky blonde dude. And he's just like, I just don't... There's nothing about you that I find interesting. Like, you're just boring. And you're like, okay, I guess. She looks like Kathy Ireland, but whatever, dude. And then she come, You know, it comes back to the beach after she emerges from the city of Atlantis, and he sees the friend that she was sitting with on the beach and he's like, oh, is it true? I heard that, I think her name was like Hannah or Helen or something. I can't remember. She went to, to Africa and she's like, well, ask her yourself. She's back. And they like cut to the ocean and she's walking out in this like red string bikini, almost like it's this massive transformation. And you're like, all she did was take the glasses off and she just put the bikini on. She still looks like Kathy Ireland. Like I can't believe it's the, it's the she's all that yeah, mentality like, of like, and all oh, of a sudden so he's ugly. like, oh, <laughs> so when are you going to take me out and tell me about Africa? And she's like, never. And then Tom Matthews pulls up on a, on a motorcycle and it's like, Hey, I don't know this place because like he lived underground and the movie actually directly quotes streets of fire because the, the main repeating line that he kept saying to her is cause she's always like, we'd be so good together. We should be in love. And he would always be like, it may be another place or another time. And he pulls up on his, his uh, motorbike. Perfect. And is like, and she's like, Oh, I feel like you, I know you. And he's like from another place or another time. And she's like, yeah weird and the movie like ends and you're like oh my god but it's so i don't know that's the one that for me is like so infectiously sweet because you can just feel him being like i just want to tell like a cute little movie and like have it just be peppered with punks and weird underground cities and shit yeah i think the ones that hurt the most are just because they're one location i mean vicious lips mostly takes place on that ship. Oh, it's horrible. And it's like 40 minutes of the movie. They just are like fighting with each other. And it's supposed to have this, and supposed to have this theme of, um, her wanting it so bad to be a star that she'll, um, sacrifice anyone. But, it's not really clear. They just say that a couple times. There's like an intergalactic werewolf at one point that doesn't do anything. No, he just hangs out um, and kind of looks through and like spy. But he's like, I can't get out. But then it then like she wakes up from her dream and the radioactive dreams 
um, club club um, with Maxine, who's like the biggest promoter slash also gangster, I think, of the universe. And, Again, and more Streets of Fire influence. Right. And they're like ready to play. Um, again, the music's really, really good. But because it's like his version of Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Yep. They, and they Same go thing. on like a journey. Her and name's Ace. Up, yeah. And it, they crash on like this desert planet. And the majority of the movie is just them walking through hallways. It's 77 minutes long and it feels like it's nine years long. Yeah. No, it's a brutal one. And that, that, and again, Deceit's the same thing where it all takes place. And, when he's able to at least change locations, go a little wacky because his ideas are big. I mean, I love the kind of, like you said, like serialized kind of filmmaking of, of his later films, but also you see that in radioactive dreams. Um, just these kind of adventures where you kind of fall down a rabbit hole and it's random and it's crazy and it's weird when he's really letting that out. It's super fun when he's trying to trap because he has no money his entire story one location it's brutal because his dialogue is not good enough to sustain my interest in fact it's like like you said nails on a chalkboard mean guns is one of the few that takes place in mostly one location that i actually kind of like because he gets some really good performances out of like christopher lambeer but like yeah it's one of those things to where like you watch it and you're like again you don't have the resources. So do you have a good enough idea to at least float this for 80 minutes down twisted is the other one that I really like because again, it's the antithesis of what we're talking about. It almost becomes like Albert Pune's new wave charade to where it's about uh, a woman who the love interest from uh, dangerously close who falls in love with John Stockwell. Oh, not John Stockwell. Who's John Stockwell's sister. Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Oh, oh, you mean Carrie Lowell? Yeah, Carrie Lowell from oh Law and Order. She's like the Audrey Hepburn stand-in, and she gets wit- like caught up in this like globe-hopping uh, kind of art thief okay. escapade with Charles Rocket from SNL. It's like, yeah, exactly. Is her love... <laughs> love interest and like she's she's chased by tom matthews again like i want to know how much of tom matthews rent that albert pune just got paid by keeping him employed for years and years Fuck and yeah. years because like tom matthews shows up our boy tommy jarvis with like bleach blonde hair and like these new wave insane like neon suits and he's like the bad guy in it he's he's almost like channeling roman polanski from Chinatown. Okay. If like Roman Polanski from Chinatown, like free based, like a little bit of crack and listen to like, you know, flock of seagulls. <laughs> so, but that, that one's a lot of fun because like it keeps changing location and there's a propulsive nature to it. There's airport shootouts. It, it gets to Rio de Janeiro at one point. There's a boat chase. Like it's just a fun fucking, there's like this awesome motorcycle stunt in the beginning where there's like a car chase and then this dude gets shot off of a motorcycle and flies off of a pier and it's like done in slow motion and it's clearly like a really dangerous stunt. But like, that's the weird thing about a lot of these movies. And again, where I think that nemesis really excels is that his action isn't always the best because you can tell he's trying to almost like green grass it before green grass was a thing to where he's doing the sequences and then like chopping them all up so that we, 
it, it feels more propulsive than yes. it actually is. I wonder, question for you, if I think about what would have happened if they had made Spider-Man, um, if they had made Master of the Universe 2, both of these films. Sure. Right? And let's just say... On like an alternate timeline, like that... And they were actually... didn't bounce those checks. And they were good. Like somehow they were... Let's just say he made... They wouldn't have been. They would. They okay. would. They would have been. We've really seen bad. Captain America. Yeah, it would have been like that. It would have been that level. Stars of J.D. Salinger's son, Matt Salinger. Yeah, so Talk about a fucking dolt. Yeah, there's a charisma vacuum right there. Oh, he's the worst. What I, a I, weird decision to make Captain America just a giant dork. Like he never stops being Steve Rogers. Like he's, but he also isn't heroic in that one. Like he's just kind of a goon the entire time. I love, there's there's so many things about Captain America, that movie that I adore. Um, it came out around, I think it was the same year as, uh, Punisher 1990, 1990. So you have, uh, or in Punisher's 89, I guess. But yes, you have these two movies for a comic book fan. When I was at a age, you didn't get a lot of movies, right? And you think about, Couple things in Captain America. That first, in the new Captain America, like they had, they have CGI and they can make Steve Rogers look super scrawny, and then he gets beefy, right? And this one, he's already a big fucking dude, Matt Salinger. So he just limps a little bit from polio. <laughs> That's what they say. He's just hulking mass of a dude. And he's like, oh, I'm strong now. It's like, dude, you've been fucking seven foot tall the whole time. The second thing is that Red looks like Michael Chiklis. He- <laughs> He he looks like a caveman. He's got that fucking jaw on him. He looks like Ben Grimm. He looks like Robert Zadar. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so the, the best thing it's is, weird that you cast Maniac Cop as Captain America. <laughs> but the bad guy is Red Skull. But instead of being German, he's Italian. Yeah, and it's so ridiculous. And so they like. When he at the beginning, he's the full on Red Skull in the World War II era. The makeup's kind of cool in it, it. it, but it's all pussy, and he kind of looks like a bad version of Uncle Frank from Hellraiser. Yeah, it's like really gross. But then they didn't have enough money, so the, he he grew older, and in modern day, it just he's like. He just had some plastic surgery. He has a couple scars. He's like, I'm still the Red Skull, but now he's like this Italian businessman. It's a me, it's, a Red it's Skull. It's a Red Skull. It's a, it's a spicy meatball. But like, it's that movie is is you're right. What Spider-Man would have been. But my question is, if he would have gotten, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we agreed that his Spider-Man would have never turned out good. Right. But if he would have, for some reason, not been with with uh, Canon with Golan Globus had somehow gotten over. If he had followed the path that he had, I think with a movie like um, dangerously close. Sure. You know, if someone like, which is highly competent, very highly competent. If let's say like an 87 or 88, like Dino or Edward Pressman came to him and said, Hey, we got this like Van Damme action movie or a Chuck Norris outside. Or the Total Recall version that he was supposed to make with William Hurt and like Ronald Shusett from Alien was writing it. Who did it? Who did write yeah. one, one of the drafts for exactly? Yeah, for um, for Hovens. But can, do you think he could have been something? You know what I mean? In terms of like a, a an A list or at least a B list director, um, because I think he's got the chops when for action. And there are a lot worse filmmakers working in Hollywood. I feel like. And he's he's a self starter, you know. Like he's he's kind of doing it all. Maybe 
It just am I being de- too nice? Yeah, it. I feel like again we're we're giving him too much credit. We're like, it's it's easy to mistake Moxie for talent. Yeah, you know, and that's not to say that Albert Pune wasn't talented. His movies often look gorgeous. He could compose a shot. He, and again, he had great ideas when they did come together. They're very entertaining, and he was always flexing against a lack of resources to get these things made. However, I also feel like he was his own worst enemy in terms of like the ideas were always neat, but implementing them like not so much. Let's yeah. say like perfect example, blood match. So you can almost track Pune's moods by the movies <laughs> he was making because like Kickboxer 2, the way back, the, the first Kickboxer sequel that he made has kind of like an after school special thing that's also translates over into doll man, which they're both, I believe the same year, 91 and like doll man instead, you know, we're like, Kickboxer 2 is all about this guy who's trying to help the community. And it's almost like Albert Pune's warrior. Like he's mm. he's resisting, you know, getting back into fighting because he doesn't want to live that life. He just wants to teach ki- the local, like, underprivileged kids. And then Peter Boyle, <laughs> as the big bad fight promoter, like, brings him back in. And then he's more or less, like, shanghaied into fighting Tong Po by then, the, the villain from the first. Now, here's the thing, is that (laughs) instead of him being, like, reprising, like, the Van Damme role or something, he's actually Van Damme's second brother. So it was like, yeah, it gets weird. So remember in the original Kickboxer, how Van Damme's character watches his brother get killed in the ring, and then it all becomes about him fighting Tong Po... And like training and having like the crazy, like, like his kooky, like mentor who puts him through all that, the yeah. training montages and stuff. Well, his brother and, was, his was, uh, paralyzed. Paralyzed. That's it. Yeah. Well, he ends up dying I later thought. on, but yeah. not, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. You're splitting hairs, so- but whatever. <laughs> the basic mechanics are there. And then it becomes like the famous montages of right. him, like grabbing things out of the air and blah, 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 blah. Um, well, in this, Sasha Mitchell is Van Damme's other brother who Kurt is killed off screen, but we don't know how. And then it becomes a major plot twist that we find out that Tung Po had a second fight, almost like the, the, the mythical fight between Apollo Creed and Rocky between three and four. Yeah. That there's almost like a second fight that happens between one and two in this movie. And then Tong Po, disgraced, shoots him in an alley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's bonkers. And that sets it up to where he's disgraced and not allowed to fight anymore. And the big Japanese promoter that's teaming up with Peter Boyle wants to get Tong Po back in the ring to avenge his, his great national shame, brings him back and switches him out for the fighter that Sasha Mitchell is supposed to fight. So... Where I'm going with this is that, like, Pune is almost like his worst enemy because he's like, well, what if there's another brother? And Tong Po killed the first brother. And then, like, then 
They swap him out to get in the ring, and then they finally fight. You're like, dude, that takes up an hour of the fucking minute, like movie. There's got to be an easier way to, just to, to get, get to the just point. Just to get there. But where I'm going with this is that, like, also, you know, Dollman keeps the same kind of after school specialty thing because Kickboxer 2 is also PG 13. Like, it's super weird. There's little cussing, nothing. Has the same kid from Kickboxer 2, too, that plays the uh, Latina. Like kind of social worker and like activist son oh, that's oh, yeah, okay. going against the the gangs locally. So like Doll Man shows up and like half of that movie is like he has to bond with her son like this really demented version of ET and then also clean up the streets of like all the Latino gangs. <laughs> really fucking weird. Led by Jackie Earl Haley. Le- led by <laughs> Jackie Earl Haley, who must have emerged from beneath a pile of methamphetamine for the entire <laughs> film because he's just screeching throughout the entire thing. Real committed performance. I admire it. But Doing a thick New York accent. My too. Lord. Oh, yeah. He was on something. But where I'm going with this is that, like, so you have, like, this mood. It's kind of the same way that, like, Alien from L.A. and Radioactive Dreams find him, like, working through, like, some weird dad stuff or whatever. Well, Blood Match is the movie that he essentially made over a weekend, kind of like he did with Deceit. um, During the production of Kickboxer 2, where they actually use the same ring that the, all the fights take place in, in that movie. And it becomes about Tom Matthews is a guy whose brother is killed by like a janky promoter. And then he goes with a handwritten kill bill style list goes around and, and kidnaps all of these people who are associated. And then like in weird, like Saul like style ties them up in the arena and then has them fight various blood matches with him. One of the fighters being Benny the Jet Urquietes. No, no, no. Don't, don't, oh. don't make that face. This is the only director in history who can make Benny the Jet seem slow. I love uh, him so it, much. Yeah, it's not great. Blood Gross point blank. If you think blood match, if you thought deceit was, was rough to get through, blood match, baby. No way. Yeah, but... My grant, this is all a very long-winded way of me going like, blood match on paper sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds great. It's like I kidnap all these fighters, we get them together, and then we make them Mortal combat each other in this arena because in the name of like me avenging my brother's death. And in the meanwhile, like some horrible things about his past and his brother's past are emerged, and it, it's again becomes kind of like deceit like this weird stage play where like the boxing ring is this shakespearean arena where tom matthews is delivering all these monologues about honor and glory and and revenge okay great in theory sitting through it those 85 minutes or whatever you're like dear god just let this fucking end the martial arts suck (laughs) the monologues are worse it just doesn't work and to your point about like, could he have been a better or bigger filmmaker? Maybe, but like, I don't know if he had more money if he would have suddenly been executing his ideas better. That's fair. Yeah. Because like all the pieces were there for like blood match to be fucking awesome. And he still fucked that one up. (laughs) Do you want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. You play close to the heart And everybody knows it But now you're running out of room to hide So many 
And we're back talking about 1992's Nemesis. Martin, real quick, top three pune, go. Um, Dollman, number one, easily. Um, this is one I've watched two times before. I think it's got a lot of rewatch value. It's short, it's fun. Out of all these, it moves a little bit faster. And again, Tim Thomerson, really delightful in it. Um, I love what he's able to do with the lack of special effects. Like he actually does some pretty cool stuff with, again, wide angle lenses to make him look smaller. Um, and it's just a fun kind of full moon movie. Uh, number two, Dangerously Close. Again, I think this is a great, just like overlooked 80s little thriller, teens. Uh, I think it's good until the end. That's my only problem with Dangerously Close is I think the end kind of shits the bed. Yeah, and it gets a little schlocky. Um, but I think like the, all the like teen stuff leading up is super fun. Again, like the 80s soundtrack and, and some good synth score stuff too. Um and then three, I would say Nemesis. Um, I just yeah. think it's like a solid fucking movie. Um, and I, I feel bad saying this, but like those are the three that are also the most tolerable. I think we even get down to four or five and it's, it gets kind of rough going for me. All right. For you? I'd probably go with Radioactive Dreams as one. Nemesis as two. And I'm having trouble deciding. It's either dangerously close or down twisted. I really liked Down Twisted. It's it's the most uh, propulsive of all of his movies. And the because let's face it, like pacing not Albert Pune's strong suit. Like you didn't get to watch Crazy Six, did you? I did not. Crazy Six is like one of the great smuggling moments of his career because you look at the cover. And you get Ice T, Burt Reynolds, and Dirtbag Rob Lowe on there. And it it's called Crazy Six, and it has some tagline. Like a lot of his that were like, no one survives tonight or something. <clears throat> and you're like, oh, shit, this is like an action movie. They're all going to shoot each other, blah, blah, blah. Some of that happens, but it's basically like an Eastern block Western where all of these gangs are fighting each other like Tom... Uh, Matthews, again, shows up and he teams up with Mario Van Peebles, who is speaking with a French accent and clutching a chihuahua the entire time. And they decide to team up and fight Ice-T as a gang member who Ice-T, as Justin Declo notes in his book, might not actually get out of his chair for the entirety <laughs> of the movie. Um, but it tricks you into thinking, oh, this is going to be like this. Tony Scott, like sub Tony Scott style, like gangland thing where they all burst because like it opens with a couple hotel shootouts and stuff of like people bursting into hotel rooms and shooting each other and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, this might be cool. Well, it slowly transforms into, so there aren't six gangs or six people. Crazy six is just the name of Rob Lowe's character. And he's like this dirtbag sort of assassin type who's like, I think. They think they're trying to set up as almost like a Yojimbo who's going to play both sides, but really she just falls in love with the synthesizer girl that I mentioned in the previous segment who acts as like the Greek chorus, and it turns out that they're both junkies, and it's their junkie love story hidden inside of this 
gangland shootout movie, and it almost becomes like one of those mid '90s Abel Ferrara like character studies, like something like New Rose Hotel, New Rose Hotel, or The Blackout, or something. Yeah. But like, it's just scenes just bleed into one e- one another, like the hired hand, like this is some kind of like Peter Fonda, like acid Western. And it's almost like he wants you to feel the mundane nature of these junkies existing inside of this crime ridden world and how they just want to escape and never do heroin again and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, this is all again, interesting in theory, but like sitting through it, kind of a nightmare. looks great though. It's, it's funny. You mentioned, Mario Van Peebles doing an accent because that's a thing he has people do. Um, Nicholas Guest, who's in a lot of these films, um, does this weird fucking, I think, French accent or German accent in Nemesis. Um, he's like the captain in Adrenaline doing like an Eastern European accent. Brian, uh, James, Brian James shows up in, in Nemesis and yeah. he's doing a weird accent in it too. They're both like playing off each other, sounding really fucking strange. Yeah, it and almost like, becomes like Albert Pune's Inception for a minute. <laughs> and Brian James is the Tom, the Tom Hardy character. <laughs> so, double feature. Um, I was trying to decide because there's a lot of directions you could go. Um, I decided to do Nemesis with Bridge of Dragons. Um, okay. And I, uh, we were talking about this other day with Brandon. We were talking about Isaac Florentine. Um, there's some similarities to like that, that kind of DTV size movie. Um, I think Florentine's a much better filmmaker than, than Pune. Um, yes. But yeah, that's similar kind of like 90s, like 90s vibe with a $5 budget. Um, and my boy Dolph, and any excuse to watch Dolph, um, always good for me. Sure. How about you? Dangerously Close and Class of 1999. Oh, you fucking suck, dude. I was thinking of something like that. I love that movie so much. That's right. That's why I'm good at this. Y'all, we're, we're, uh, a Mark Lester episode is not out of the cards. No, it's coming soon. We got to do it. Like, we're 100% doing a Mark Lester episode. Um, But it just, I like uh, how they're almost like mirror image movies. Like, a lot of people compared, I saw on Letterboxd, uh, Dangerously Close to Class in 1984. And some of that is there just because of the bullying. Yeah. And the paintball sequences and how violent it turns out by the end. It actually more reminds me of the substitute than anything else. But, yeah. Um, but I liked how they they're almost like funhouse mirror versions of each other because like where the kids are like the patrolling violent uh, Avengers that are keeping quote unquote order in the school. In class of nineteen ninety nine, it's the cyborg teachers that are killing everybody and malfunctioning. And also like you want to talk about a a movie. Like if you would have told me that Albert Pune directed class of 1999, I probably would believe you. It's a, it's more competent because Mark Lester's a much better action filmmaker than Pune ever was. 
but it has a lot of the weird flourishes, like the teen cyberpunk gangs, the, the robots. A lot of Hispanic street gangs. A lot of Hispanic street gang stuff. Uh, Stacy Keach with that neon blonde mullet. Like, yeah, real crazy. And he's eating that banana during that entire like opening boardroom sequence and stuff. It's just, it's we. I don't think we have covered yet how like everything, you know, not to be, to kind of make a very obvious statement, but like, in any art form, particularly filmmaking and acting, or maybe acting is the number one example of this, is that they tell you it's all about choices. Like everything's a choice. You know, you, you make the choice to move your hand a certain way or move yeah. your eyes or deliver a line. And that's all those choices add up to what your actual performance is. It's the same thing with any kind of art form. It's, like, it's all a, a series of choices that end up becoming a piece of art. Well... In all Albert Pune movies, choices were made. They might not always be the best ones. Where Mark Lester is also making very distinct choices, but his seem much more calculated and thought out than Pune's. Where like Pune is kind of flying by the seat of his pants, and even in something like Dangerously Close, uh, which is a, a much more composed and frankly competent uh, one of his films, there's still moments where you're like, okay, well that's fucking weird like the whole paintball yes. sequences which look amazing with all the fog and uh, shadows and synth music look great but in the end you're like I don't understand the point of this really and then you know but class of 1999 is almost like you want to talk about a dude who's making choices John P. Ryan oh, in that movie spanking just fucking oh my god when he spanks that student you want to talk about a mega performance like he's so far over the top it's amazing i love him and i love him in everything anytime he shows up like you know you're at least gonna have one entertaining bit well i mean that the whole like all three of them so you have him uh fucking pam greer and then i forget the third guy's name the guy from uh plays the sandman in death warrant Right. And he's in like Minority Report and everything. Real ugly fucker. Um, but somehow not Brian James. Yes. It, it's funny. Like, I like what you said about, you know, his choices. Cause, you know, David Fincher, I'm going to misquote, said like, it's 100 ways to shoot a scene and one's the right way. Right. You know, and I feel like a lot of times maybe Pew t- takes the wrong way. Um, but 1999, not to go on a tangent too far, is one of my favorite just sequel concepts and just sequels that you took this like really like ground level crazy comic booky 1984 but still like it's like real kids in a real school michael it's, j fox on pcp michael <laughs> yes um and and like and like rape and it's really like rough it's gross and then 1999 is this this like full-on like sci-fi terminator exploitation movie it's gross in a different way yeah you want to talk about a movie that i first experienced on cable a lot like we talked about with the friday the 13th and jason takes manhattan i remember staying up all night and then getting to the drill part where they drilled the one kid's like fucking head open and i was like as a as a young like 11 12 year old kid like what is this fucking movie it's insane yes um but yeah, no, I mean, again, I could talk about Lester all day, but we were both at the same screening. We talked, we realized before we knew each other. Right, where they did, they were doing the those double features. Sci-fi double features. The sci-fi double features, and they did 1984's The Terminator and Class of 1999, both on 35 millimeter. And let me tell you, what a day that was. That was awesome, dude. What a 
Because that was an afternoon screening, too. They started like a Sunday at like three or something. Yep. Got out at like seven. It It was was great. It was great. So, remake. Yay, nay. Here's the thing. What are we remaking here? I feel like, again, we could pick one film from Pune's filmography and just be like... This is uh, say if you were to remake one, which right. would you remake? Go. Um, I would do Doll Man. I mean, it's my favorite. Really? I, I would do Doll Man with a big fucking budget. I, again, this is like I would do this movie with like a two hundred million dollar budget, and because one of my favorite movies also in stories is The Incredible Shrinking Man, the Jack sure. Arnold film, and I've always wanted to do a miniature um, miniature guy like in a big world. Um, there's do this, you also want to shove dolls in your ass? There's one in there right fucking now. Oh, so, um, But one of the last books that um, Michael Crichton ever wrote, it was posthumously finished by someone else, but it was called Micro. Girl with the dragon tattoo. Yes. Um, fuck off. Um, <laughs> but Micro is basically Jurassic Park, but it's just everyone's miniaturized, and so the monsters are like bugs and things like that. Um, so it's like Michael Crichton's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Yes. Oh, that sounds awesome. But it's like super sci-fi and like techie and all that yeah, kind of shit. all his bullshit. It's really fun. Um, so I would do like that kind of movie, like super, or I would make a lot of it take place, um, like somehow have humans go to like Arturos. They're super fucking big. They're like, they're like Godzilla size, stepping on like Dollman cities. I would do like almost like a legacy sequel and have Tim Thomerson come back. <laughs> As like Brick Bardo and they have like his kid or his grandkids. He passes the torch. Yes. All right. Who would pay? Who would play a uh, doll man junior? Doll man junior or doll girl? Ooh, that's a that's a really tough question. Oh, John Bernthal. What? Yep. I want to put him in anything right now because we on the same. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you watched episode four yet? Oh yeah. Ugh. I'm so in. I love that show. It's the it's the best piece of storytelling we've gotten this year i think like straight up in 2022 yeah yeah absolutely because 2021 was for me midnight mass but yeah um, yeah yeah. yeah. so this i would say i would do dangerously close cool again uh because i feel like that one is easily adaptable into our current culture oh yeah where it would be like not to make it too on the nose, but almost like a group of like, let's say, preppy white kids who see their school being overrun by the other, uh, yeah. you know, be it gay kids, black kids, you know, people of color. The replacement whatever. theory the shit replace- about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I was thinking. Of. It's weird that you bring that up. The whole thing that's come up about replacement theory and Tucker Carlson and... And the, all hor- those, and the horrible things this this week. Yeah, all those fucking assholes that are on you know Fox News and stuff, and basically extolling these virtues of like the most racist shit you've ever heard. But it's almost like I I did think about that in terms of dangerously close and how like a modern version of that would almost be like the alt right kids are probably still the jocks. Yeah. And, you know, because you could go the 22 or 21 and 22 Jump Street route where, you know, it flips the whole idea because Carrie watched another movie, too. I can't remember the name of it because I would never watch it in a million years, but it's that new um, Rebel Wilson comedy that's um, like back. It's basically like her version of Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School. 
but it's like she goes back and all of a sudden, you know, all, all the jokes are basically like all the stuff that you can't say because it's unwoke. Now you can't say gay. You can't say this. You can't say that. And it's just like the most on the nose version of that. We're like the, the jump street movies I thought handled, yes. handled it quite well. I mean, Lord and Miller, are very good writers. That's why. Um, but where you have like, you know, Channing Tatum was the dude when he was in high school that was super good looking and jockish and kind of dumb and used the nerds to like do his work and blah, blah, blah. Like the traditional like 80s style like yes. cool kid. And all of a sudden he goes back and it's like all of the, the nerds and stuff and like the kids who actually do their work and are woke and, um, you know, sensitive to each other's knees. Like they're the cool kids now. Like that's that version of it. To me you almost do it in like one of these, like say if you made it in Texas, Texas would probably actually be one of the best settings for it, but do it in like one of these Westlake Hills style uh, high schools to where it is a bunch of kids who are like preppy and from old money who live here outside of Austin. They're, parents most certainly voted for Trump, but they do it in a way that's almost like, yeah, it's, they don't talk about it out in the open because they always hide behind like that still uh, genteel bull, like Southern gentleman bullshit of like, well, we don't talk about that, you know? And it's like, we love everybody. We love everybody. But like Donald Trump just supports the values that we really extol in our homes. I don't know why everybody's foghorn leghorn now, but, uh, (laughs) but like to me, you do it in that type of school again, kind of like, I believe in our first episode, I told you guys about my idea for my Rolling Thunder remake yeah. to where you make it about a, a, a Mexican soldier coming home and finding out that like his hometown on the Texas border is now more or less like one of those like concentration camps that uh, Greg Abbott has set up and shit. And he goes in to like blow everybody to smithereens and like free his people. To me, you do the idea of that, but just set inside a high school to where it's still the traditional, like the white preppy kids are, and they're all nice to all the, these people who are, let's say replacing them. Um, they're nice to them the entire time. They're polite to them behind their backs, but then they have this kind of secret society that patrols and polices them and make sure that they they don't get out of line and shit. And again, you make that idea of like, what if there was like a KKK inside of this high school and it was not only frowned upon, but actually like held up by the administration is kind of like a good thing and how you have this band of kids who fight back against it. And it just becomes this full blown war to where you watch all the preppy racist white kids die. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd watch that movie. Hell yeah. So to the final question is nemesis a face melter. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I'd agree. It's it's there are scenes. If the whole thing were the opening gun battle, yeah. Um, it's, again, that lack of resources on display to where, like, the the actual action is probably the best of Pune's entire career. Yes, 100%. It's the clearest. It's the best shot. Um, it's coherent. Yeah, it's his coherent. usual, like, cinematographer, uh, George Marodian, I believe his name is, who worked with Vilmos Sigmund, I found. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, like, style. Yeah, he, well, he trained under him a lot how, like, Pune worked with, you know, Kurosawa and Mifun and, and his cinematographer and stuff like I found out Meridian basically went and begged Vilmos Sigmund to work on the deer hunter. And that was his first production ever. 
Yeah. Talk about a training ground. Holy crap. Uh, but then he went on, he shot like the majority of Albert Pune's like best movies. And like, I think he does a really good job. And also the camera moves in Nemesis a lot differently than they do in a, and then it does a lot in the other pictures. And also he uses that 2.35, almost like two perf anamorphic, like widescreen in it. That looks really great. All of this is amazing. However, it still highlights Pune's background as coming from like exploitation and working for exploitation producers and stuff because like you have these amazing huge shootouts and the, the same kind of cyberpunky dusty sets and everything. But there's also long stretches yep. of almost indecipherable dialogue happening. Like there's a whole scene in the middle, well, not even the middle, but like towards the end of the first act to where like you you meet Tomerson. Brian James and then a, like a couple other people and it all takes place in this like open air almost like hallway and they're just like yelling at each other the entire time and then it ends and you're in like a different country by the end of it and I was like I don't know what happened in that scene like I literally it's just dudes shouting in, like nonsense at one another well and they're like he tries to do stuff in this movie too of like that Alex the main character was in love with a cyborg who is now their body's dead. They're just like basically on a, like a fucking Palm pilot. <laughs> He's like carrying around and talking to, um, and there's some interesting stuff there about, he's kind of touching on in like Blade Runner world of like what is consciousness and what is humanity. And they keep hammering down the theme of like, you're barely human anymore, Alex. You're more machine than man. 86%. Yeah. And it's kind of like, okay, but then what? You know, he's like trying to have these smart, big ideas, but they kind of fall flat. That's where my argument where you were like, if he had more money, would he have been a bigger filmmaker? Is that it's like, I don't think that he thinks any of the ideas like through beyond like their surface level coolness, let's say. Yeah. Where it's just kind of like, what if he had a girlfriend who like is so reduced that now she's just a palm pilot? Cool. That's it? That's all we're doing How with this? About, yep. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I don't think it's a face melter either. I think it's a great DTV style action movie. Um, I am bummed. I know that like a 35 millimeter print has showed like here in Austin and a couple of like areas. And I think it would be like an amazing big screen experience just because it is so visually lush and kind of awesome. But face melter? Yeah, not so much. Yeah. So, Martin. Sir. We did it. We got through Albert Pune. He didn't break us. Almost. He almost did. But you know what? I still love him. So. I appreciate he's making movies. I appreciate that he exists and that, you know, because again, his spirit is inspiring. Yes. And like his moxie and his, his perseverance over bad reviews Bad movies that he made. Bad producers. Shitty yeah, experiences with producers. Like he never let any of it get him down. And like that's a great uh, example that we could all take into whatever we're doing in life. Agreed. So what are we doing next week? We are doing um a regional episode. Yeah. I was, I was gonna say that. This is one hundred percent a one for you, and honestly, <laughs> I can't wait. But you all gotta stay tuned. Until next time on Secret Handshake. See you then. Bye.